bad bread. Why be lonely? Register with us for a small fee and start corresponding with members of the opposite sex. Thousands of our members have met the ideal mate through the mail. Why not you? Well, Lonely Hearts advertisements, like this one, didn't start when the infamous case of the Quiet Dell murders was first splashed across the pages of newspapers and detective magazines in the 1930s, and they didn't end there either. Even after the murders made headlines, people continued to meet, court, and marry partners they met through the mail. Gradually, those advertisements evolved into the so-called Lonely Hearts Clubs, which provided names and addresses to the lonely for a fee. The clubs owed most of their popularity to Prohibition, when it became very difficult to meet people in the bars and clubs they'd once frequented since the bars and clubs were closed. The Lonely Hearts Club seemed to break down into two categories, middle-aged people looking for love and young people anxious for what they called the joys of marital life. In 1920s speak, the joys of marital life meant sex, so the clubs became the era's version of a hookup app. But it seemed most members were those with limited social options, particularly widows and single women and men past a certain age. They flocked to the Lonely Hearts bureaus by the thousands. The love-starved sent hundreds of thousands of letters through various services, hoping to meet the perfect person each year. Advertisements that attracted as many as 500 letters per day included things like rich widows and wealthy widowers and hinted at the possibility of landing someone with a six-figure bank account. The cover charge for most clubs was 25 cents, which was the price of a four-page brochure that contained a snapshot and a brief biography of clients looking for spouses. For three bucks, a client could receive a yearly subscription. The rest was up to the correspondents who exchanged letters or, as the clubs called it, engaged in postage stamp flirtation. Well, it all seemed innocent enough, but sometimes the person writing the letters was not what they appeared. There were some people out there corresponding with a dozen or more women or men at a time, accepting gifts, money, and marriage proposals, and worse. The unwitting lost their fortunes, their hearts, and inevitably, their lives. The scandals that followed some of these cases of love gone wrong resulted in investigations and temporary injunctions against some of the most popular Lonely Hearts clubs, but efforts to close them down permanently met with failure. New ones popped up in the classified ads of newspapers and magazines like Weeds and became fixtures in romance and detective pulps. More scams followed, and when federal authorities did manage to make a case, the story was always given front-page headlines, but the exposure failed to slow down the business end of matchmaking. Lonely Hearts simply ignored the cautionary tales of robbery, even murder, and continued to look for love among the ads. But of course... That wasn't all they found. Welcome to American Hauntings, the podcast dedicated to the history, hauntings, and the dark side of American history. And welcome to the last act of this season, Woods and Fields, Dark and Wicked, which is hosted and produced by Cody Beck and written and performed by Troy Taylor. That's me. This has been a strange and twisted season so far. Filled with witchcraft, hexes, curses, mysterious disappearances, and the many spirits and sins of America's past, but this last chapter has definitely become the bloodiest and most twisted as we delve into some of the murders that have occurred in our country's forests, farms, and fields. This is episode 21, a heartbreaking tale of betrayal, 
murder, and gruesome discoveries on an isolated farm in West Virginia. Even though it probably won't have much more effect on you than it had on those who answered lonely hard ads in the 1930s, I can hope that it makes you hesitate for just a moment before you swipe right the next time. Among the scores of desperate seekers of love in the 1930s was a 50-year-old Danish-born widow from Oak Park, Illinois, named Asta Eicher. She was the mother of three children, Greta, 14, Harry, 12, and nine-year-old Annabelle. Asta was not a woman easily led astray. She was cultivated, socially prominent, artistically inclined, and wealthy, thanks to the estate of her late husband, a prosperous Chicago silversmith. But she was lonely and hoped to find a man to fill the space that had been left in her life by the death of her husband. She wrote a letter in response to an ad that she saw in one of her romance magazines, and in early 1931, she received a reply from a gentleman who identified himself as Cornelius O. Pearson of Clarksburg, West Virginia. According to his letter, Pearson was a successful civil engineer with a net worth of 150 grand, which would be more than 2.5 million in today's money. He had what he described as a beautiful 10-room house, completely furnished. Because his hectic work schedule and his many responsibilities prevented him from making many social contacts, as he called it, he turned to a matchmaking service to help him, quote, make the acquaintance of the right type of woman. From the information listed about Asta, he felt she might be a suitable partner for him. And he wrote, my wife would have her own car and plenty of spending money. Over the next several weeks, the two embarked on a long distance mail order courtship. As their handwritten romance heated up, Cornelius plied the full figured widow with his particular brand of sweet talk. In response to a photograph of herself that she'd sent, he exclaimed over how well preserved she was and assured her that he preferred plump women. He also let her know that he understood the deepest needs of the opposite sex. He wrote thrillingly, the great trouble is that men are so ignorant they do not know how women must be caressed. That was hot stuff for 1931. I dare you to use that line in a text to your significant other. See how that turns out. At some point in the spring of 1931 at Asta's invitation, Cornelius made the first of several trips to her home outside of Chicago. There's no record of how she reacted to her first look at her long distance suitor. From his letters, she expected a tall, handsome, distinguished looking man with dark wavy hair and clear blue eyes. What she got was a spectacle-wearing, beady-eyed, moon-faced man who stood barely five feet seven inches tall and weighed nearly 200 pounds. But as they say, personality goes a long way, and Cornelius must have won her over because she invited him back for several more visits and proudly introduced him to her neighbors as a man of substance with investments in oil and gas wells, farm property, and stocks and bonds. Anyone who still had any money left during the Depression is... Cornelius clearly did was someone worth knowing. On June 23, 1931, Cornelius returned for another visit to Oak Park. After staying for two days, he and Asta left on a trip together, leaving the three children in the care of the family nanny, Elizabeth Abernathy. Five days later, Miss Abernathy received a letter from Asta telling her that Mr. Pearson would be coming soon to pick up the children and asked that she please have them packed up and ready to join her in West Virginia. 
Accordingly, this arrived on July 1st. He spent the night at the Iker home, and the next morning, he sent the oldest girl, Greta, to the bank with a check and a note, both signed by Asta. The note instructed the bank clerk to fill in the entire amount of Asta's bank balance on the check, cash it, and give the money to Greta. After reading the note, the teller called over the bank manager to study the letter and the check. As far as they could tell by comparing the signature on the account, it didn't appear that Asta had signed the note or the check. Greta was sent home in to be handed with a stern warning not to play pranks with her mother's bank account. When she returned without the money, Cornelius quickly packed up his car, loaded the three children into the back seat, and drove off. He refused to explain anything to Elizabeth Abernathy. Elizabeth didn't know it then, but none of the Ikers would ever be seen alive again. On November 17, 1892, Wilco and Jean-Tine Dreff welcomed a baby boy named Harm into their lives. The Dutch immigrants crossed the ocean to America in 1910, and within a few months of their arrival, Harm was already in trouble with the law for stealing liquor and cars. Other arrests followed. He committed robbery and he skipped out on unpaid loans. He wasn't much of a criminal, and he always seemed to get caught. He spent a few years behind bars and while locked up, vowed to become more adept at lawbreaking. Unfortunately for his victims, he did. While locked up, Harm came up with a surefire way to make money with very little work. He would court rich women and desperate widows through the ads in the back of magazines using the Lonely Hearts ads. He would romance them, propose to them, get them to give him their money for safekeeping, and then promise to sweep them off their feet and take them away for a life of wedded bliss. He would, of course, never deliver on his promises and would disappear into the night. What could go wrong? Harm knew that the first thing he needed to do was to ditch his name. It would help him cover his tracks and erase his identity as an immigrant. Women wanted a good, strong American man, he told himself, and that's what he'd give him. He started using a string of aliases, including Harry Powers and Cornelius Pearson. Harm Drenth was gone for good. Harry, as he called himself most of the time, set up a post office box in Vandalia, Ohio, and a mailing address in the Ohio town of Mansfield. After receiving a list of eligible women's names, he went to work, striking up his first correspondence with a Hammond, Indiana woman named Lena Fellows in the mid-1920s. Harry pursued her cautiously, but as the letters flew back and forth, he finally proposed through the mail and suggested they elope to a quiet location for a quick wedding and start their life together. Since they wouldn't be returning to Indiana after the wedding, he instructed her to bring all her jewelry with her and close out her bank account which had about $1,600 in it, and bring that cash on their wedding trip. When Harry arrived in Indiana, Lena was startled to find that he looked nothing like how he described himself in his letters, but she figured that maybe she'd hedged a bit too, subtracting both some pounds and some years, and decided she'd love him for his personality. They quickly drove off, with Lena thrilled at how well things were working out for her. They drove for hours, and it seemed like Harry had no real destination in mind. Lena was content, though, especially when Harry stopped at a service station for some fuel. Before she got out of the car, Harry suggested that she lock her cash and jewelry in a suitcase in the back seat for safekeeping. He didn't want anyone to see it when they stopped for meals and gas. Well, Lena thought this was a wonderful idea. 
locked things up, and then went off to use the restroom while Harry had the attendant gas up the car. She had a smile on her face when she walked out of the station, but that smile quickly disappeared. The car was gone, and so was Harry, and he'd taken the locked suitcase of money and jewelry with him. Well, Harry was eventually caught and went to court over the incident. His attorney was able to convince the jury that he wasn't guilty. I mean, after all, Lena had given him the cash and jewelry as gifts. He hadn't stolen them. Well, once free, Harry went back to the Lonely Hearts ads, looking for more victims. The next time he vowed, he'd do things differently. Harry soon had other women on the hook. One of them was Luella Struther from Clarksburg, West Virginia. She, her mother, and her sister Eva owned a house, a store, and some land in a secluded spot called Quiet Dell, an unincorporated area about eight miles south of town. They began exchanging letters. Harry's notes were filled with loneliness and hope, and Luella wrote chatty, flirty missives in return. Soon, he proposed marriage. I assume his original plan was to do the same thing he'd done with Lena Fellows, but for some reason, he didn't. Harry went through with the marriage, and they were wed on June 1st, 1927. But don't worry, our villain has not fallen in love. He simply decided to play the long game. Good luck followed the wedding when Luella's mother died about three months later, leaving the house store and the land in Quiet Dell to his wife and sister-in-law. His first order of business was to get the two of them to sign a power of attorney that would make him the legal authority over all of it. With a little gentle urging and the built-in misogyny of the era, he soon had a document with both their signatures on it. In April 1931, Harry told Luella that he planned to evict a family that was living on their quiet Dell property and build a garage on the land. He wanted to turn it into a workshop where he could tinker around in the peace and quiet. Luella never questioned. He hired a local cement contractor to build the garage using plans that Harry had created himself. Like Luella, the contractor never questioned any of Harry's additions. He was getting paid. That was good enough for him. Around that same time, Harry went back to work with the Lonely Hearts ads. Now posing as Cornelius Pearson, he described himself as a wealthy 38-year-old civil engineer who was looking for the right kind of woman. He described his stately home, his memberships and the Elks and the Freemasons, and how well he planned to treat his future wife, giving her all the love and all the money she'd ever need. His ad, no surprise, was a big success. Harry received more than 100 replies to that ad from lonely widows and spinsters. His post office box ended up with so many letters in it that it overflowed. To keep track of each woman, he invented a coded system that he could, at a glance, tell where in the correspondence he was with each individual woman and what benefits she could provide him with a proposed marriage. One of the women at the top of the list was Asta Eicher, a widow from Oak Park, Illinois. She and her three children mysteriously vanished in the summer of 1931. Well, just three weeks after Cornelius Pearson drove off with the three Iker children, he turned up at the home of Mr. and Mrs. Charles Fleming in Northboro, Massachusetts. He was there to meet the object of another long and passionate correspondence, Mrs. Fleming's sister, Dorothy Lemke. He'd recently proposed to her, Dorothy had accepted, and now they planned to leave town and start a new life together. Before leaving town, though, Cornelius and Dorothy stopped by two local banks, where Dorothy withdrew $4,000 from her accounts. They were leaving for Iowa, where the two of them planned to get married. 
On the way out of Massachusetts, they stopped at a railway station to ship Dorothy's trunks ahead. They planned a leisurely sightseeing drive, and Cornelius wanted to have her trunks waiting for them at their Iowa hotel when they arrived. But Dorothy didn't notice that the trunks were not sent to Iowa. Instead, they were sent to Fairmont, West Virginia, where a man named Harry Powers picked them up at the train station just a few days later. And as for Dorothy, well, she was also never seen alive again. Despite how it might seem, Harry's criminal skills had never really improved since the time he was a really bad car thief named Harm Drenth. It was the nanny, Elizabeth Abernathy, who first alerted the police that something strange was going on with the Iker family. During a search of their home, detectives found 27 letters that had been written to Austin by Cornelius Pearson from a P.O. box in Clarksburg, West Virginia, and they immediately began trying to track him down. They searched through public records, telephone books, and city directories for Clarksburg, but there was no trace of anyone named Pearson. They soon turned to the Clarksburg police and explained the situation, telling them that Pearson was wanted for questioning the disappearances of Asta and her children. The police chief put a detective named Carl Southern on the case, and he also discovered that Pearson apparently didn't exist. But then he turned to the U.S. Postal Service. He soon learned that a man named Cornelius Pearson had rented a post office box and had given his home address as 111 Quincy Street in Clarksburg. Well, it turned out the man's name was not Pearson at all. It was Harry F. Powers. And far from being a wealthy bachelor with money coming in from oil wells, dairy farms, and high-yield bonds, he was married to a local girl named Luella who owned a little store near their house. Detective Southern was ordered to bring Harry in for questioning. When officers arrived at the house, Luella told them her husband was out, but he would be back later. He had long before convinced her that he needed to travel often for his job as a vacuum cleaner salesman, and she'd gotten used to him being gone for days and even weeks at a time. When Harry finally did return home, she told him the police had been there and that they planned to return that afternoon. Harry shrugged off the news, but then told Luella that he quickly needed to transfer $4,000 from his bank account into the store's account. He didn't tell her why, but obviously he didn't want the police to find that kind of money in the account of a simple salesman. He'd never figure out a way to explain that. When the police returned, Harry at first denied that he knew Asta Eicher, but when he was confronted with photographs of the more than two dozen love letters that he'd written to her, he grudgingly admitted they had corresponded, but nothing else. He insisted he didn't know anything about her disappearance. Well, Harry was arrested on a warrant from Illinois and taken into local custody. Before he was interrogated at the station, he was searched and the police found four letters addressed to four different women in his jacket pocket. He said he'd written them for fun. That was all. And then he demanded a lawyer. Under questioning, Harry admitted again that he knew the Iker family, but if they were really missing, he was sure they'd turn up safe and sound. Asta, she was only a friend. She contacted Harry to help her sell some of her property, he claimed, and their relationship had turned flirtatious, but had remained innocent. Harry's arrest was reported in the local newspaper, and the story was read with interest by a woman named Louise Watson. She telephoned Harrison County Sheriff Wilford B. Grimm to tell him that Harry had a garage on property that adjoined land belonging to her mother at a place called Quiet Dell, a few miles outside of Clarksburg. 
The sheriff badly wanted to get into the garage, so he went to a justice of the peace and obtained a warrant under bootlegging laws, even though there was no evidence that Harry had been making or selling illegal liquor. But, you know, he could have been, and that was good enough for the justice of the peace. Sheriff Grimm got the search warrant on August 28th, and joined by local officials and Detective Southern, he headed for Quiet Dell. None of the men would ever forget what they found there. There was a rundown cottage sitting in the middle of the secluded property, once home to the family that Harry had evicted. It had clearly been empty for a while. Directly across a narrow dirt road, though, stood a large structure, Harry's recently designed and built garage. The door was secured by a pair of heavy padlocks that were pried open with a crowbar. The interior had been designed to hold at least three automobiles, but there were no cars inside and no workshop which was the excuse Harry had used to build the place. In the middle of the dusty concrete floor was a pile of trunks and boxes that turned out to be packed with the personal belongings of Asta Eicher and her three children. Among the clothing and correspondence were letters that had been written to Cornelius Pearson. As they poked around, one of the officers noticed a trap door in the floor. The garage had a basement level. Harry had designed it that way. When the door was opened, a wave of horrible odor rushed up into the faces of the lawmen. It was coming from below. Shining their flashlights down into the darkness, several officers cautiously descended the creaking wooden steps. As they looked around, it became painfully clear that the cellar had been designed and used as a prison. The space was divided into four cramped cells, each of them fitted with a heavy wooden door. Small iron grated openings at the top of the exterior walls allowed some weak rays of sunshine to penetrate the gloomy interior. Otherwise, there was no light and no ventilation, and there were no furnishings, just a bare, filthy mattress on the floor of each cell. And horrific discoveries were made in those cells. In one, they found a noose that could easily be used by a hangman. In another, they found a bloody footprint. They discovered a hammer with blood on it, clumps of hair that had been pulled out by the roots and bloodstains on all the mattresses. A partially burned bank book and scorched clothing with blood on it were later retrieved from some ashes near the building, but there was no sign of any victims. Even so, any hope that the authorities had about the safe return of the Iker family began to fade. The search of the farm continued. The Clarksburg Fire Department assisted with pumping out an old well that was located on the property. It would have been the perfect place to dump a corpse, but they found it filled with rocks and water. No bodies. While the search was going on at Quiet Dell, Harry was still being questioned in town. He suddenly remembered that Asta and her family had gone away with a man named Charles Rogers, who lived in Pittsburgh. Enough was enough. Handcuffed and heavily guarded, Harry was brought to Quiet Dell and shown the boxes in the garage and the bloodstains in the cellar. He finally changed his story. Austin and her children had gone to Denver, not Pittsburgh. And while he recognized some of the bloody clothing as that of the Iker family, he didn't know anything about the rest of the stuff in the garage. Someone must have been using the place without his knowledge. Other than that, he said nothing. The news of the terrifying discovery spread rapidly across the area, and by late afternoon, more than 300 of the morbidly curious had gathered at the farm to watch what was taking place. Among these bystanders was a 15-year-old boy who lived nearby. 
He interrupted Sheriff Graham to tell him that he'd recently helped Harry dig a ditch for a sewer pipe that was supposed to stretch from the garage to nearby Elk Creek. Officers from the Sheriff's Department and the state police grabbed shovels and went to work. As the excavation progressed, a road gang from the county jail was brought in to help. Soon, a terrible odor began to emanate from the trench. Asta Eicher's body was discovered first. She'd been strangled and wrapped in a burlap bag before being buried in the ditch. Her arms had been tied behind her. Clumps of hair had been ripped from her head. The bodies of her three children were also discovered wrapped in burlap later that afternoon. A few hours later, the diggers came upon the remains of a fifth person, who was later identified as Dorothy Lemke. By this time, she had also been reported missing by her family. According to the results of the autopsies that followed, Asta had been starved and tortured before being murdered. Evidence in the death dungeon, as the newspapers were calling it, suggested that Asta had been hanged from the noose that was tied to a ceiling beam, likely in full view of her children. While her son Harry had tried to struggle free and save his mother, his skull had been beaten in by the hammer. He'd been castrated while still alive before his body was buried in the ditch. His sisters had been strangled and dumped next to him. They'd all been starved for days before they died. Dorothy had been strangled too, using a heavy leather belt. It was still twisted around her neck when her corpse was discovered. Confronted with the corpses at the local mortuary, Harry viewed the remains with no emotion and claimed again he had no idea how any of them had died. When he was taken back to jail, a mob had already formed around the building, screaming that Harry be turned over to them so that justice could be carried out. But even then, Harry remained silent, maintaining his innocence. He insisted they had been buried there by someone else. At that point, which came on Friday night, August 28th, the interrogation took a turn for the worse. Police officials, Sheriff's deputies and even detectives from the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad took turns questioning Harry with their fists, boots, burning cigarettes, a rubber hose, and even a ball-peen hammer that was banged on his knees, elbows, and toes. He was jabbed with knife tips, his left arm was broken, and hot, boiled eggs were pressed into his armpits. Finally, around 4 o'clock the next morning, he broke. He sobbed to the detectives. I did it. My God, I want some rest. Photographs taken of Harry over the next two days show his badly swollen face, black eyes, bruises, burns, puncture wounds, and welts, all of which his captors insisted were obtained by falling down the stairs during questioning. In the jail's infirmary, he signed a confession to the murder of Asta and her children by hammer and strangulation. Well, no matter how the confession was obtained, and keep in mind, there were no laws prohibiting that kind of interrogation back then, Harry did commit the murders, and he may have committed others that will never be proven. You see, the police found hundreds of letters that he'd received from lonely women around the country. Each of them had poured their hearts out to him, and he had professed his own love in return. Detectives began reaching out to the women who'd written him letters, trying to make sure they were still alive. One of them was Edith Simpson of Detroit, who expected Pearson to marry her in September. She'd already purchased her wedding dress and was making arrangements to leave town with him. 
When shown a letter that Powers had written to Asta Eicher, Edith was amazed to see that it was an almost exact copy of one that he'd sent to her, but still refused to believe he'd done anything wrong until she was shown photographs of the bodies of his victims. She vomited on the spot, likely then realizing how close she'd come to being next on his list. But not all the letter writers were so lucky. A mother would later contact the police about her daughter, Maude Johnson, who'd gone missing a few years before. One of the photos later found in Harry's possession was that of an unknown woman with the name Maude Johnson written on the back. As news of the murder spread, new letters began arriving from victims who were luckily still alive. One of them, June Dixon from South Carolina, claimed to be Harry's lawful wife with a marriage license to prove it. Seems he was also able to add bigamy to his list of crimes. Speaking of wives, the authorities were running into trouble with their questioning of Luella. They were trying to figure out what she'd known and if she could have been married to Harry for four years without ever suspecting that anything strange was going on. At one point, the cops were sure she was guilty and then at another time assumed she was merely stupid. She claimed she'd never asked Harry about his business or his frequent absences. She admitted that she did enjoy the stylish women's clothing that he brought her, but it never crossed her mind to ask where the used garments had come from. So maybe she was just stupid after all. The discoveries at Quiet Dell were being talked about in every home, church, general store, billiards, parlor, and barber shop across the region. People were fascinated by the news of the newly dubbed Bluebeard of Quiet Dell, taking the name from the character in the French fairy tale who had a habit of murdering his wives. Hundreds of people lined up to walk through the Romine Funeral Home in Clarksburg for a look at the five victims who had been laid out in open caskets on display. On Sunday, August 30th, an estimated 30,000 curiosity seekers overran the so-called murder farm at Quiet Dell turning the hot end of the summer afternoon into what newspapers called a morbid holiday. A dozen county deputies were dispatched to the scene to direct traffic, but they were soon overwhelmed. A couple of enterprising local promoters quickly erected a six-foot wooden fence around the property and started charging people admission to get inside. Outraged at having the site of a tragedy transformed to what one observer called a mass murder amusement park, Someone soaked the fence with gasoline during the night and set fire to it. A second attempt at a fence was also promptly torn down. Rumors were still spreading about local citizens taking justice into their own hands. The rumors became real on the night of September 19th when a lynch mob of more than 5,000 men and women surrounded the jail, crying out for Harry to be turned over to them. The fire department was called to the scene to try and help dispel the mob with water hoses, but the angry crowd tore apart the links of hose from the trucks to keep them from operating. And several members of the mob tried unsuccessfully to turn over one of the fire trucks. The crowd was then confronted by a contingent of heavily armed lawmen. The sheriff and his deputies, the entire city police force, and a detachment of state troopers who warned them to stay back or be shot. Ignoring the threat, the mob surged forward. After firing a few warning shots over their heads, the police let loose a barrage of tear gas. But as the canisters were spewing their contents, members of the mob <laughs> picked them up and hurled them back at the cops. A cloud of tear gas hung over downtown for hours, burning the eyes of bystanders more than a block from the scene of the riot. Eight members of the mob were arrested before the crowd could finally be dispersed. 
But as it turns out, Harry wasn't in the jail anyway. He'd been hustled out of a rear exit and into a waiting automobile. Escorted by two state police cars, he was driven to the state penitentiary at Moundsville, where he remained in solitary confinement until his trial. The next problem that the authorities faced then was finding a suitable place for Harry's trial to take place. The old courthouse was too small for the anticipated crowd, and the new courthouse was under construction. The temporary building, which would later serve as the city hall and police station, wasn't nearly large enough for the number of spectators that were sure to come. So county officials arranged to hold the trial in the largest venue available, Moore's Opera House. It had a seating capacity of 1,200 people, and every seat was filled during the five days of the trial. Choosing a jury was more than a little difficult. Most local residents had already gone out to Quiet Dell to gawk at the garage, and everyone in the area knew about the murder victims that had been found there. Harry's attorneys demanded a change of venue, but it was denied. Eventually, a jury was seated, and the proceedings began on December 7, 1931, with the principal performers, the judge, jury, witnesses, defendant, lawyers, and the prosecutors, all on the Opera House stage. During the days that followed, the audience watched in rapt attention, while Harry, in sharp contrast, just seemed bored by the whole thing. Prosecutor Will Morris was seeking the death penalty and was confident he'd get it. Even though the defendant had been indicted for five murders, the prosecutors had elected to try the case based solely on Dorothy Lemke's murder because there was a more direct link to Harry Powers. The prosecutor had a damning list of witnesses, including James E. Smith, the contractor who testified he constructed the garage at Quiet Dell for Harry Powers. Detective Carl Southern testified that Dorothy's body had been found in the ditch near the garage. He also stated that he had seized letters that Harry had that were addressed to Cornelius Powers. City and county officers testified about bloodstains, clothing, and trunks found at the scene. County coroner Dr. Leroy C. Goff testified that Dorothy had been strangled with a man's leather belt. Mr. and Mrs. Charles Fleming identified Harry as the man who left their home with Dorothy, claiming to be Cornelius Pearson. Employees from the Express Company in nearby Fairmont testified that Harry was the man who picked up trunks and other baggage sent to Fairmont on Dorothy's behalf. Three bank officials at the Second National Bank in Uniontown, Pennsylvania, identified Harry as the man who had cashed two checks totaling $4,287.21 that were drawn on Dorothy's account. Three residents of Quiet Dell swore they'd seen Harry Powers shoveling dirt into the ditch near the garage between July 30th and August 1st. And then there was the forensic psychiatrist who had interviewed Harry, just in case he tried to put on an insanity defense. Dr. Edwin H. Myers, one of the best in the business, testified that Harry was legally sane. He knew right from wrong, even if he just chose to ignore it. He was driven by greed, but he received his greatest satisfaction, the doctor said, from planning and carrying out his murders and torturing his victims before he killed them. He was simply, Dr. Myers said, driven by the mere love of killing. Harry took the stand for his own defense, but offered a confusing mix of denials and accusations about two mystery men who he claimed had actually committed the murders. He said he'd only been an acquaintance of Dorothy's and he cashed checks for the real murderers. His testimony was flat, disinterested, and none of the jury members believed what he had to say anyway. Harry didn't even seem interested when the jury returned a guilty verdict on December 11th. They'd only deliberated for two hours, 
just long enough to order out one more lunch on the county's dime. On December 12th, the judge sentenced Harry to death on the gallows. Harry simply shrugged. His attorneys tried to appeal the case several times, but with no luck, and Harry was already resigned to his fate. On the day of his execution, Harry was natally dressed in a black pinstripe suit, white shirt, and a gaudy blue necktie. He calmly walked up the steps to the gallows without assistance and looked out dispassionately at the 42 witnesses who had assembled to watch him die. Asked if he had any last words, he calmly just said no. A moment later, at precisely 9 a.m. on Friday, March 18, 1932, three attendants stationed by three buttons pushed them simultaneously and Harry Powers dropped to his doom. None of the three men would ever know which button actually sprang the trap door. Neck broken, Harry dangled at the end of the rope for 11 minutes before the prison physician had pronounced him dead. Neither his father nor Luella claimed his body for burial, so he was buried in an unmarked grave in a Moundsville cemetery. The location of the site remains a mystery today. The story of the blue beard of Quiet Dell ended for most people with the death of Harry Powers, but in a way, the horror lived on. His father, Wilco, couldn't live with the idea that his son had committed such atrocious crimes. He'd already outlived his wife and all of his other children. He didn't see any reason to go on. On October 6, 1933, at his farm in Ohio, he put a shotgun to his chest and fired the blast that ended his life. The crimes of Harry Powers divided Luella and her sister, Eva, they never spoke again after the murders were revealed. Eva took over the store and Luella lived in the house. She withdrew from society and refused to leave home. The shame was just too much to bear and she was never seen in public again. She died in isolation in 1957. The infamous garage was later destroyed. A house trailer sits on the property as of this recording. As for Harry, he's managed to live on in infamy or at least a fictionalized version of him has. In 1953, his life and crimes inspired a best-selling book by West Virginia author Davis Grubb, who had lived not far from Quiet Dell at the time the murders were uncovered. The book, called Night of the Hunter, was set during the Depression and told the story of a psychopathic ex-con named Harry Powell, who passed himself off as an itinerant preacher. In his relentless hunt for $10,000 in stolen cash, he courted, married, and then murdered a widowed young mother, then pursued her children, who ran off with the money. Two years after the book was published a great success and critical acclaim, it was adapted into a film starring Robert Mitchum as the serial sex killer with the words love and hate tattooed on his knuckles. It turned out to be one of the best and most sinister roles of Mitchum's long career. So if you're looking for a real chill some night, seek out the movie and give it a watch. If it scares you though, that's too bad. This is one of those rare times when you can't just tell yourself that it's only a movie. This is a case of fiction being inspired by fact and as most of us know already, truth is almost always stranger and much more terrifying than fiction.
say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Now that now that all that is settled, okay. Thanks for tuning into the American Hauntings podcast, the show where we discuss history, hauntings, legends, lore, and the dark side of American history. We are now in season six of the podcast. Woods and fields, dark and wicked. Yes, thank you. I'm your co-host Cody Beck, and with me is my co-host, author, historian, crime buff, the founder of American Hauntings, Mister Troy Taylor. Hey, how are you? Hi, you sound uh, exhausted after Halloween. Um, yeah, I I don't know. I I'm not exhausted. I I am tired. Um, I am tired today. Yet it's okay. been a free weekend of nothing but river road tours. And uh, while I do enjoy doing them, they're <clears throat> they could be waking wear you out, especially yep. if you do them in a row. So yeah, so I, I decided in the spring we're we're going to start. We're going to keep doing the Ghost of the River Road tours. We're also going to start doing another bus tour that stays in town, the Spirits of Alton dinner tour. Uh-huh. So it's going to be something a little bit different. And I mean, we'll still be go- getting on and off the bus and going to different places, but it'll be a slightly different tour. So, yeah. okay. I, th- I think that that'll be good for you. Travel. Like, you know, I mean, not that I'm driving the bus or anything, but, you know, thank God. But, um, you know, it's so I just need to change things up a little bit. And it, it also doesn't help that I, I'm really <laughs> tired after Halloween. So of course, you know, I, I think that'll pair. And What's a that? damn time changed again. I know. So, Just God, today, when the clock goes back, it. I, I know. It makes me so tired, and it well, should be the other way around because you get an extra hour of sleep. But instead, I, I'm just exhausted for like the week afterward. I and yeah. I can't figure. It out, so well, and you get so, to toss. You get to toss your uh, your uh, what the seasonal depression on top of the regular depression, as they say, and this is when it starts. And yeah, it's oh, great. I think that that in town um, bus tour though that'll pair well with my tour, where I just take people in the back of my Honda CRV and drive around all, and then I'm like, this one time, this crazy shit yeah. happened here. Yeah, there in was high this. This is a bar where you know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh man, uh, let's. See. You know, I was trying to think. When was the last time we saw each other in person? Uh, that's a good question. It's been so long. It's been because because I was thinking I talk to you all the time and like we talk about I, movies yeah, and, and events and it has been a little bit. I didn't even think about that. Yeah, it has. I'll see you. I'll see you soon uh, because we're gonna get together to record the end of the year thing so yes that will that won't be too long we only have after this we only have two more episodes we have two more regular episodes that is bizarre and then it's time for the end of the year and then we're off for the holidays yeah and i'm gonna sleep that entire time that we are off (laughs) yeah yeah 
Yeah, except when you're doing the Patreon podcast. So oh gosh, I, okay, I forgot. I know, but I'm gonna. I don't want to drop the ball on those, so we're gonna keep those going. But okay, yeah. I think it's a good idea. Keep them rocking and rolling. Yeah. So, and then we'll get ready for uh, for the next season, season seven, right? Season. Uh, yeah, that's that yeah. sounds weird to say, but yeah, it does but yeah, it is. So we're yeah we're we're starting to gear up for that too. So now you know why we're tired. Yes, exactly. Uh, well, what, what, okay. So, well, I know we're, we're tired, but the life is, that's not going to end and the, the hauntings don't oh, stop. No. So what do you got coming nope. up? Nope. Nope. Yeah. That's what I always say. I mean, you know, and I think we talked about this last time. I mean, Halloween used to be the start of the spooky season, not the yeah. end. Uh, so we try to keep that going with our winter events, but um, I do have uh, on November 18th, which is just in a week and a half now, um, my new book, One Bleak, Win- One Bleak Midwinter Night, <laughs> comes out. And it is my, finally, people have been asking me for years, you write all these Christmas-related horror things, you know, terrible things that happen. Why don't you ever do a book? And I'm like, I don't know, man. So I so I did. I finally did. So Hell yeah. that comes out on 18th and then on december the 3rd i'll be doing a book signing in alton for that one at the mineral springs from 11 to 3 so that's a saturday so on the third i'll be there doing the book signing um we have all kinds of christmas stuff still happening uh or spirits of christmas stuff happening in december uh two river road tours one of which is almost sold out uh there's a ghost hunt at the mineral springs on the 9th um uh, the dinner i had dinner with st louis exorcism that sold out but I do have um, just a few spots left for the new and updated Spirits of Christmas dinner that I do every year. So um, all of these things are coming up. Uh, we still got a couple of things in November. I mean, you know, we don't we don't stop, and we've already started adding stuff for next year. <laughs> I've already put up new dinners, new tours, and everything for the spring, winter, and spring. So you know, there's always something going on. But so we don't ever let the end of halloween slow it down never yeah except and for maybe today we're tired. yeah, yeah <laughs> <why> we're tired. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh and then we still have uh we got dead of winter still coming up yeah we're coming up in february that's february 11th um we the vip package is almost full so if you're wanting reserved seating and all, all the other things that come with it the t-shirts and all that stuff get on that because I know it seemed like a long way off when we posted it, and some of you probably forgot about it between now and then, but get back onto the website and check it out because um, I just updated the entire website, but you'll still find Dead of Winter still right there at the top. Um, I also have, speaking of around that same time, I've also completely updated the website for the 2023 Haunted America Conference too. It's all up and running now. We just, tickets aren't on sale until January, but um, if you're thinking about going, you might want to start checking it out, making your plans to get your tickets when they go on sale. Because while we'll have a lot more general seating this year, we're still going to have the same number of after hour events. And if you want to do those, you got to get on them because they will fill up. They, they always do. And they will again this year, too. So awesome. So, yeah, I, I was and thinking, too, for. Tired. Yeah, right. I was thinking for Dead of Winter. 
we always have people, you know, ask questions from the audience and things like that. And I think before, uh, in the past, you know, we've told people to send questions in and, and things like that. But yeah, please, this year, again, send me in. If you have questions, um, if you're going to be at Dead of Winter and you have questions that you're going to want to answer, if you send those in to AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com and when Troy and I do our little live portion, I'll make sure, I'll, I'll probably prioritize those questions and answer them first if you're going to be there. Um, yeah. And yeah, because I just want to get some crowd participation, you know? Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. And if you're not going to be there, you're not going to hear the answers. So you don't have to send them. Right. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we have a fun listener review I'd like to talk about. This oh. one is from Cindy Maves, and it's just titled Addictive with an exclamation point. It says, I found this podcast through the ladies at Trendy Lobotomy Podcast, and I'm loving it. I've worked my way backwards through the seasons and can confirm that the audio is definitely better in the later seasons. And yes, Troy, some of us really do listen all the way to the end and listen to you interrupting Cody's outro. I've loved the monologues from the very beginning. You can tell the you can tell instantly the passion that Troy holds for the subject matter. The second half and the banter between Troy and Cody grew on me over time, and I appreciate the fact that Cody is able to ask many of the questions I would want to and is able to draw out additional information during the course of the conversation. Can't wait to see what you bring us next. The reason I wanted to highlight this, but thank you, Cindy. That was, that was very nice. But um, can you imagine listening to us over and over and over again and us growing on somebody over time as opposed to... Fungus, yeah, you know, a, yeah, a virus uh, or something. Just starting hating us, so yes. more and more. So thank you so much for the <laughs> review. I really appreciate it. I don't quite understand it, but I, I appreciate it <laughs> so much. Um, okay, let's. Yeah, forty minutes in. Um, are you ready to? to, to dive uh, I know in? that. Well, hey, what, real quick too. Let me let me give a shout out to yes, uh, our friend and longtime listener Cheryl McReynolds. She sent us uh, some Halloween uh, things that she made herself some placemats and things so uh, i wanted to thank her for sending those and so i well i wanted to get that in there while i could before we got started oh awesome yeah thank you so much yeah, is this yeah. is this like the uh the oreos that you uh kind of the halloween oreos well, I, I haven't seen you yet oh okay so, okay i didn't know if you were like i, I used all the oreos placemats. well the oreos were gonna go stale so right, right. they were halloween oreos so, i mean what was i supposed to do you know, that's true that you was, have to eat them so i felt that it, they needed to be eaten because then you know you know the when they sent them they they wouldn't we think we didn't appreciate them so that's you know I, what when you were awesome so when you put it like that <laughs> uh, okay all right the quiet Dell murders uh, lonely hearts clubs became popular uh, because of prohibition and i was thinking about this so I'd, I'd heard the term before never really put it all together um until was reading your your outline and um i think you know it's hard it's i think it's, it's hard to meet people now you know when you can't go out to bars and stuff i think that's why things like tinder and bumble and yeah. those things kind of blow up um and uh the way speaking of this sorry i just made a quick note but the way that they marketed tinder i think this is just brilliant is they went to college campuses and they went to all the sororities and got all the girls in the sororities to sign up then they went to those fraternities and they were like look oh, at all the yeah. chicks we have on this app uh-huh. and yes. i was like that's that's brilliant um but <laughs> these kind of clubs you know broke out into two different groups of mostly lonely middle-aged people and then young anxious people who essentially wanted to have sex and yeah, it was you know, pretty much tender, except that there wasn't yeah. a tender and no phones and no apps. But yeah, yes. So there was a, a double side to it. But you know, it started with the best of intentions. Uh-huh. How many times have you said that? <laughs> of course. <Yeah. laughs> but I just never thought of 
bad eventually. <laughs> I guess, yeah, I just I had never thought of this before, but I mean, um, I I've had all these kind of pieces in my head, but yeah, like taking you know putting an ad in a paper to paying money, sending letters back and forth, like just seems like such a long drawn out process. I think guess because I'm yeah. used to instant gratification. Sure, sure. And I mean, you know, yeah. especially this is Craigslist. Yeah. You know, except. I mean, Craigslist was not that far off from this. It just wasn't in print, but it was at that primitive of a looking website though, <laughs> you know? Right. But, so it was the same kind of thing. It just, it took a lot longer, like you said, to, to make the connections with people. But I think people were a lot more patient about things like that back then. Yeah. You know what I mean? I just, I guess. Well, it probably had to be. Quite as quick as it does now that, you know, people didn't mind waiting, you know, a week for a reply or longer, you know, uh, who knows? I mean, some of this stuff would drag out forever. And, and I think that in a lot of cases, I mean, I think it worked out fine. I mean, it would not have stayed around for as long as it did if everybody on it was getting ripped off and, and murdered. You know, I think sure. in a lot of cases, it probably worked fine, but it was a different time. You know, it was just, it was a different era. I mean, it's, it's not the kind of thing, obviously, that would work today. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, all of this, but again, though, we're, we see the same things happen. I mean, isn't, wasn't a lot of this catfishing, essentially? Oh, yeah. I mean, because this guy was doing, tell, oh, I'm so handsome. I'm tall and handsome and have bright blue eyes. And then this guy shows up, you know, looks like a toad. And it's yeah, like, that's dumpy uh, what happened, you know, but that's, but again, shows you how desperate and lonely people were, you know. Yeah. Uh, Okay, well, okay, he's okay. I'm sure he's a nice guy. What a great personality! You know? Yeah, of course, yeah, he was the he's, yeah. he was the, like the original Tinder swindler kind of guy. And, yeah, um, right, right. Uh, yeah, so uh, I, yeah, I, I've been thinking about this the whole time about um, how we should bring something like this back because I want to see can you spell without autocorrect? That is like, can, <laughs> um, can you write an actual letter and have yeah. thoughts? Yeah. Um, that could be yeah, a good little litmus test right there. Uh, so Asta Eicher, 50 years old, 1930s Oak Park, Illinois, mother of three, wealthy widow who's lonely, receives a reply. This just a great name, Cornelius O. Pearson. Like I know, right? Such right. a you know, what's a rich guy called? Yeah, uh, let me think of a rich guy's name. Yeah, oh, that would be it. His yes. nickname, Biff, you know, or Chip. No, Chip. Gotta be Chip. It's gotta. That's gotta be his nickname, Chip Pearson. Yes, I love it. That, oh, that would have been. That's so good. Uh, she claims he's rich. Uh, says he likes well preserved or how well preserved she was. <laughs> After seeing her picture, lovely. So. Yeah, uh, get this great, the great lines you mentioned. Uh, the great trouble is that men are so ignorant they do not know how women must be caressed. Um, yeah. which you know honestly yeah you know guys read an anatomy book maybe it does set you apart from the herd <laughs> but i just uh, don't like the way he phrased it and yeah, again shows up not what he claimed to be eventually they correspond go back and forth children eventually are left in the care of nanny elizabeth abernathy she re receives a note from the mother saying oh cornelius is coming back and pick up the kids and so this this thing he sends the the oldest girl out Greta to go cash the bank account. Um, did he think that it, she just had a better chance, or he didn't want to get I guess, caught up I mean, in it? Maybe he thought it would look suspicious if he showed up. This unknown person, where you know maybe the people I'm guessing the people at the bank maybe knew Greta had seen her come in with her mother or something, and sent the daughter in because and maybe he thought since it was her daughter. She'd have a better chance of, you know, sure, be 
to cash the check. Got it. Okay, the bank doesn't buy it. You know, quit messing around with your mom's stuff. Um, and you know, quit quit trying to commit bank fraud. You know, uh, and then <laughs> yeah. she, she returns empty-handed. He picks up the kids. I'm guessing he's just like, "Fuck it." Okay, we're, we're out of here. Yeah, gotta go. Gotta Do go. you Beat think was and so? But Asta was probably. Oh, you think she was? She had to be alive at this time, I guess. She's but... Still alive, I imagine she was already uh, in the the garage. The garage, the garage by then. So got it. Like yeah. Uh, well, okay. Speaking of this this character, uh, this section I I titled "Do No Harm," um, because the, named the guy Harm. I yeah. always, yeah. I, which I thought was, uh, you know. Ironic, poetic, I don't know, but it reminded me that ever since I've seen Knives Out, I always wanted to have my son's middle name be Ransom and just call him Ransom, <laughs> uh, which which I love. Can't wait for Glass Onion, too. Um, <laughs> harm starts causing trouble in America around 1910. So I, I wrote initially, I was like, he really sucks at being a career criminal, but then I was oh, like, or... Or, but I was like, or is he good at it? Because he just keeps oh. getting caught, and that's what criminals do. Like, yeah, if he's not making I, I a mean, career out of it, kept getting caught for such minor, dumb crimes. You know what I mean? I that, mean yeah, that's the thing. He and, and really, even when he starts doing crimes that are much more drastic, he still gets caught. I mean, he's still not good at it. They just happen to be. I mean, he does he does okay for a while. He swindles a lot of people. Probably made a lot of money there for a while. But he eventually still got caught, so he's still not very good. He, his luck didn't really improve. Yeah, that much. So, so okay. So he he is he is dumb, and he, but he's 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 somehow he's clever enough to figure this stuff out. So was he like? I mean, could he could he have not done a lot of this in person because he didn't seem so charismatic? Do you think it only worked because of the time and the method yeah. in which he yeah, was able I to do. find? I, really do i mean it's the same way i mean it's the same way now i mean you you some you mentioned something about the the tender swindler same kind of thing i mean you pose as somebody else and that's essentially what he was doing at a time when i think people were a lot more gullible about this kind of thing because they just didn't see it coming uh, you know uh people again these these ads these lonely hearts clubs i mean yes they started because they were making money for someone obviously it was a, an idea that someone came up with to make money, but it still started with the best of intentions of connecting people with, you know, potential suitors, potential mates. And, uh, you know, and then people found a way to use it to their advantage, just like everything else. I mean, everything is the same way. There, there isn't anything that hasn't been used in some way for nefarious reasons, you know? And so that's exactly what happened here. And I think that he was clever not super smart, but clever, definitely clever. Um, you know, the doctors didn't think he was insane. They thought that he knew right from wrong. He just didn't care, you know? Um, so I think that this was a case of where, you know, he could on paper present himself really well to people that he would target because anybody that would respond really quickly to his ads, obviously he knew they were searching for whatever it was he was offering. Mm -hmm. So he just found a way to manipulate them and get them interested in what he had to offer. And, you know, it was pretty easy from there. You know, it was a just, it was a different time. But on the other hand, people are still doing it today. You know, I know. Kind of, people still fall for this kind of stuff all the time. I mean, I've known people, you know, and I haven't known any personally, but I've known enough people who passed on to me stories 
secondhand. There was a, some friends of mine were telling me about this lady. They knew that she was having a rummage sale in her house. She was selling off all her stuff because she was getting ready to move away to be with some guy that she met on the internet. And the guy turned out to be like some country music singer, except it really wasn't. It was someone who convinced her that he was. So, I mean, and this was like last year. So yeah. it's not like talk about the 1930s here. We're talking about people pulling these same kind of scams. And when you can do it without anybody actually ever seeing you and you can pull this off, you're, you're still pretty decent at what you're doing. You're a, you're a con artist and you're a pretty good one. You don't have to be smart. You just got to be clever and you got to be quick. And you got to know, like he did, at least at first, when the hell to get the fuck out of town. Right. That's exactly what he did with those kids, you know, and yeah. he pulled that several times, you know, before he finally caught up with them. Yeah. And we'll get into how he's done this a couple other times, but everything we're talking about reminds me or kind of there's like an overarching theme here where it seems that, um, Humans and human nature don't necessarily change because people have been catfishing for a long time and there have been people, um, you know, using this, uh, the Lonely Hearts Club and then Tinder and things like that. Um, humans and human nature don't necessarily change. It's just the technology and the methods and things kind yeah, of change. Absolutely. But but absolutely. you're always going to have people desperate for love and whether they do that through the Lonely Hearts Club or they do it through getting catfished now. And then you're always going to have people exploiting systems. people desperate for money, right? Same kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Everybody talks about you know, H.H. H. Holmes, the criminal mastermind of the 1890s. Yeah, there's plenty of people who've done the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. We just don't remember names, you know. Right. So, and I actually kind of likened him. Well, I, right. Yeah. A lot of people probably don't know who this guy is. I mean, he's yeah. not a big spectacular criminal, but it worked well with our stories. Yeah. H.H. You know? Holmes had better PR. Us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I did liken him a little bit to H.H. H. Holmes at just marking down like when I was kind of taking some notes. Um, but I think it's just, again, because of that particular period of time when you could just kind of like yeah. peace out and just like rip somebody yeah. off and peace Actually, out. Just disappear. And, you know, uh, you could just take off. And, and if you weren't seen again, people would miss you for a bit and then they just kind of move on. So, yeah, yeah. And he's 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 leaving, uh, you know, um, uh Lena Fellows or Lena Fellows at the gas station. Um, yeah. which, that's yeah. just, uh, you can see that. And that, was, that was one of those. Yeah. That was one of those. I'm just getting started and don't know what I'm doing yet. And that seemed like an okay way to go, but that caught up with him pretty quick, but he had a good defense attorney who argued that, well, I mean, she gave him the stuff as a gift. What do you want? You know, you know? so wow. she put it yeah. in my suitcase. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then yeah. I guess he gets a little more either confident or desperate, but uh, goes a little further with Luella Strother, um, who I guess he just maybe, I don't know if he just lucked into her mother dying or if he was like, hey, this, you know, yeah, this particular one is an say. old mom. It really is hard to say. And why he went through with the marriage is a good question, too. I just think it was probably that he needed a base of operations. You know, I mean, he needed a place mm. to land that was in the middle of nowhere, which this was. Clarksburg, West Virginia is in the middle of nowhere, and she owned property, and it was a good place to lay low when he needed to, because who would suspect he was there? You know what I mean? I mean, he yeah. had a, a, like a secret identity there in town. He's a vacuum cleaner salesman who travels a lot whose wife owns a little store and some property in town. Who's going to suspect this dork of doing anything like that? You know, and when you see a picture of him, he, he really fits the 
description that we <laughs> yeah 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 he's um not a looker so sure well he is i mean like you said with you know him needing a base of operations like if there is one thing about this guy like you talk about at least he he knows when he sees an opportunity and so yeah, this oh, one's yeah. probably Absolutely. okay i'll take this one further down the road to you know yeah. to accomplish my goal of having a home well, she probably and and i i put across the opinion later that she probably just was dumb and yeah. i think that probably one of the reasons also is because he had stuff that she needed and he knew she'd never suspect anything because she just wasn't super bright sure so, no. yeah and it's probably it's probably a combo of you know i'm not too bright and also mm -hmm. i'm getting nice stuff so yeah why not so, and yeah, what's yeah. the alternative? Like she wants him to be around. Uh -huh. She has to hang out with this little dude. And, well, right, know? exactly. Yeah. So yeah. he was probably not exactly her first choice either. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, a mutually beneficial uh, relationship there. Uh, just three weeks after Cornelius drives off with the Iker children, he turns up at the home of Mr. And Mrs. Charles Fleming, Northborough, Massachusetts, um, to get married to Dorothy, whom he had recently proposed. Uh, they empty her accounts, and uh, this this was pretty. Right off the sunset, yeah. Yeah, yeah, right off of the sunset. Uh, we're going this way. Suitcases going that way. Um, uh huh. And yeah, and she's uh, never seen alive again. He's quick. I don't know how long did it take for them to kind of start to finally pick him up after Elizabeth well, Abernathy calls the cops. First started saying, you know, that the, something's not right here. They're not coming back, and yeah. I haven't heard anything. And we've just this, we've just got an empty house sitting here, and this doesn't seem right. So she eventually goes to the police, and then they start looking into Cornelius Pearson, who they can find no trace of, until eventually they track down, you know, these letters that had been written from a PO box address, which you know, again, you should be suspicious. Sure. Uh, and they finally find out that when well, no, there's nobody there in town and eventually they need the Clarksburg police to find out who has the P.O. box. And the next thing leads to another. And they finally find the guy, the Harry Powers, who has the P.O. box. And that's really what started things off. OK, OK. And they and they right, and they find they find the cellar. They find the, uh, the trap door under the under, in the garage that goes to the cellar. You know, it looks like a horror scene with the noose and bloody hammer, and clumps of hair, burned bank book and stuff. When So they, they pick him up. Finally, they find him, pick him up. And he starts lying and saying, you know, they went with to Pittsburgh. They went to Denver. Um, you start talking later in about the trial and stuff. But um, I wrote down this question before I got to the trial. But he although he's lying in the police questioning, um, do you think he's is he is he nervous? Do you think he was acting like he was in the trial? Just kind of like not really given a shit or yeah, that, that would, my guess would be he thought he was smart enough to get away with it if he just mm -hmm. kept lying um i don't think he counted on the kind of interrogation he was just about to get yes uh, because it's pretty brutal and yeah. you know but you know according to the cops he just fell down the stairs i mean it was just an accident so yeah it's like How? okay but I mean, there weren't any. I mean, there there was there was no law that said you couldn't interrogate people like that back then. It is yeah. it is not. It became once you know once it got into Miranda rights and all that kind of stuff. You used to be able to. I mean, cops used to beat the crap out of people all the time to try to get a confession out of them. And were they always good? Not necessarily, but I think it. I mean, I hate to say it served a purpose in this case, but 
which probably the wrong way to look at it. But, <laughs> yeah, uh, it, I get it. it. Eventually, get the story out. Um, because, I mean, I, the guy definitely was guilty. It's just a matter of he wasn't going to admit it. And they wanted him to admit it. So, who did? Verity, I um, mean, hey, I, I get it. Um, and no, yeah, no, I guess it's no. sometimes the answer. I mean, uh, on the other hand, the cops could have just turned him over to the lynch mob. I mean, it could have been worse. That's true. Because two different times, lynch mobs showed up and wanted to haul him out and hang him. And yeah. they didn't let him go. They kept, they hit him. They took him up to uh, Moundsville and, and, and hit him away until they could get things calmed down. So, I mean, I guess it could have been worse. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I mean, yes, he eventually did get hanged. Dang. But still, you know, um, I don't know. I think it would have been worse if it, it, the mob had gotten a hold of him. So. Where, know. so yeah, I can see it going either way. I don't really had door yeah. number one, door number two. But where? Uh -huh. when, so I know this this wasn't illegal, of course, like you said. But um, I'm guessing they don't write this stuff like in the police report. So where do you get no. when you're doing research? Where do you oh, get no, details no. of like interrogations no. like this you, and stuff? You only get it from well, this in this case there were some some um, suggestions in the newspaper reports, but there was a book that was written by one of his attorneys. Uh, okay, who talked. About of the things that happened and the attorney didn't like him either he never got paid so he didn't <laughs> it wasn't like he was like you know a bleeding heart saying oh and they beat him up and you know it was nothing like that he was just you know passing along what actually happened so okay okay that makes sense uh yeah like you mentioned there's mobs and and you know the lunch mob really wants him and they they also are overrunning the murder farm and some of the people take the opportunity to try to turn it into a little attraction, some some entrepreneurial type. Yeah, well, uh, that doesn't uh, necessarily I work. To too admit, well. I have to admit, when I got to that part, I was trying to go. Yeah, that's a pretty good idea. It is um, a good idea. Wait, wait, wait! No, it's bad. It's bad. <laughs> it, no, I I love it. Um, it's September nineteenth. The mob of four thousand people surround the jail. Uh, like I said, fire hoses are used. Cops and state troopers are shooting tear gas, only to have them hurled back. That was something I wrote. I said, "You haven't lived till you've launched a hot tear gas canister oh, back right. into the back police. at the police." Yeah, yeah. Uh, but only eight members of the mob are arrested, which seems very low. Um, and very says, low. maybe just get a couple of troublemakers, and I'm sure those people got uh -huh. the shit beat out of them too. Um, maybe or maybe not. So. They may have just locked him up overnight, let him go in the morning once things quieted down. But that's true. Know. Like you said, they'd already moved him out. Uh, they the cops have to find a suitable place for the trial, and they finally choose um, Moore's Opera House because it had twelve hundred seats. Uh, the proceedings. I love how you laid this out with everybody on the stage. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's. Yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. They decide to only try him for the one murder because they have a bunch of witnesses and evidence. And I'm guessing, right. um, I think we talked about this before, but sometimes like you try him for the one and then if that doesn't work, okay, we'll get him for this next one. Another one. So if for some reason he would have, for whatever reason, gotten off uh, for Dorothy's murder, then they could have tried him for the Asta Iker or something, you know, right. uh, instead. They didn't, they obviously didn't need to, but, you know. Yeah. That, yeah, and so that was part of the plan. Yeah, and you'd go through some some good details in this case too, because they have a ton of witnesses and evidence, and it's really just stacked up against him. He claims yeah. he was only cashing the checks for the real murderers. Uh, of course, yeah. Which is beautiful. Found yeah. guilty on December 11th. Now on 12th, he's sentenced to hang. Uh, you just mentioned that only 42 people were there to watch him die. Like, was that because they limited it? 
Like, because I would imagine uh, a ton of people. I don't live. know. I just know that that's how many people were there, and it seemed like a small amount to me too. But I couldn't find anywhere where it said why there were. Only gotcha. 42. Although, really, <laughs> they probably limited it to officials and family members. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, they probably apparently did not sell tickets to this one. Sure. So as they often did. So I'm gonna guess in this case it was just people who were actually supposed to be there. Fair enough. That's my. March 18th, 1932, uh, with no last words, three men push three buttons and he drops hanging for 11 minutes. Uh, I I knew that they did this with like firing squads and stuff. I didn't yeah, know they did it was, with hanging. This was the first time, honestly, this was the first time I'd ever run across that. And I've written about a lot of executions. Um, and this is the first time I'd ever heard that there were like three switches and a guy threw each one. I mean, this was, it was just different. It was odd. That's the that's the reason I mentioned it. It was just, mm. it just seemed so. Okay, cool. Yeah. That was a new one on me. So yeah, all right. And then he's buried in an unmarked grave. Uh, then that's that's the end of him. But there's still the end for the others. Uh, his, his his father, uh, sad as hell, eventually takes his own life with a shotgun to the chest. His crimes had divided Luella and her sister Eva. So the house trailer sits on the current property where the garage was. And I, I wrote down earlier, I was like, wasn't this like a, a movie or a book or something? And you <laughs> kind of talked about Night of the Hunter. Um, uh-huh. But I feel like they've probably just seen this these tropes and so many different other things. It's probably sure. just why it sounded familiar. Yeah. yeah, that's probably true, too. And, and you know, like the love and hate tattoos, I think this was the first time that you see that depicted in, you know, in a movie or on screen like that. And But I mean, how many times have we seen that in movies and TV shows since then? You know, but it apparently was not a not a big thing before this. I mean, this mm-hmm. kind of popularized that that particular set of tattoos for whatever right. reason. Book and movie came out, so it actually is a pretty good movie. Um, it it holds up pretty well. I mean, this is he's Mitchum is really scary in this movie. Uh, it's a good one. Yeah, it's worth it if people get a chance to watch it. Uh, I I do recommend it. It's a good one. All right. I'll, have to add, I'll add it to the the podcast master list of movies there that we've talked about over the years. There you go. There you go. That's all I had for this story. Were there any other details you wanted to go back over? Was there anything I missed? Oh no, no, I um, I I just thought this this story really fit with our. You know, I when I was first putting together this list, this was one that was on my list from the beginning that I wanted to make sure we got in here because uh, I I think this. You know, it's, it was something a little bit different with the Lonely Hearts ads and stuff, but it still had that farm thing and the murders in the middle of nowhere that nobody was supposed to know about. So I really thought it worked. So, you know, we've got two more stories to do, both of which are, um, well, somewhat rural related and farm related. And they, um, I think, will be a nice uh, wrap up of the season, especially the last one, which has a Christmas theme. So mm-hmm. nothing harder for Christmas. So spooky. Yeah. Yes. The uh, did I make this joke last time about a severed foot being the ultimate stocking stuffer? Did uh, I think I yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm a yeah, I'm a one trick meme pony pretty much but oh man well i'd like to give a couple of quick shout outs to our new patreon subscribers so thank you very much to supporting the show to perry alexis and jesse dustin daniel amy zach aka Smokey, amy and lisa so thank you very much for supporting the show yeah, uh couldn't do it without well, you i think a lot of 
a lot of people that jumped on it knowing that our new season of Patreon was starting. So uh, we, uh, we, our first episode for the new season has already come out. You've probably seen us post about it. Um, and then uh, next week after this week's episode, we'll have another episode of the Patreon podcast coming. Uh, part two of Come Prepared to Stay Forever. And mm-hmm. things are already starting to get more gruesome. So it doesn't take long in this story. <laughs> <laughs> Come prepared to stay forever again. I don't I don't know. Part two. <laughs> yeah, part uh, two. <laughs> it's, uh, it's now time for our Ghostwriters segment. If you have a question or comment about the world of the macabre, you can email us at AmericanHauntingsPodcast at gmail.com. So this, this email, Troy, it comes to us from Marta P. And the subject is, your podcast is so good, I miss my plane while listening. Uh-oh. The message is, hi, just had a funny moment to share with you. I was so into your podcast, the St. Louis Exorcism series, that I completely didn't notice that my plane was boarding, didn't hear them call my name, and didn't notice that the plane was gone until the episode was over. And I noticed the destination on the screen above the airline gate had changed. When I told the folks at the desk, they just shook their heads and laughed and graciously helped me find another flight that turned out to be cheaper. Yay. What an adventure. (laughs) Happy Halloween season. Thank you for your great research and always interesting, fun, and informative podcast. So blame it on, we can blame it on the St. Louis exorcism. Yeah. Really. It was captivating. Every time. Every time I had that event this fall, something bad happened. Um, a really? microphone caught on fire the first time. I'm not kidding. It he overheated and uh, a cordless microphone overheated and was burning. And Damn. I had it. the second time I got food poisoning. Before. And I spent the entire day throwing up beforehand and ended up down there for the dinner. Did not go to the dinner. Let everyone eat showed up because I couldn't take the smell of the food, showed up, leaned against a wall and did the entire presentation, like just like ready to pass out. Oh my gosh. So so we'll just blame this on the St. Louis exorcism and say, it's just one more bad thing that's happened that she missed. Was it the exorcism um, when the fire alarm went off that one time too? No, it was something else. I wish it was the exorcism. That would have been perfect. That would have been perfect, but yeah. Oh, uh, well, Martha, Martha, thank you for writing in. I'm glad that they hooked you up on another flight. Um, yeah. That really sucks. Yeah. I have, I can understand missing the flight because you get stuck in traffic or you're running late or whatever. <laughs> yeah, to be sitting yeah. right there. Oh, man, that <laughs> sucks. But um, hey, you know, we, we were just helping you save some money. Um, maybe. Yeah, there you and, go. That's, uh, that was the whole plan behind it. So. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, I, I really like that story. Um, that's all I got, man. All right. Well, that sounds good. So, um, guys, we're going to ask you to continue to uh, pass on the uh, the podcast to your friends, uh, your neighbors, uh, people on the street, people you're on the bus with, on the train, on a plane, whatever. Tell them that you listen to this podcast. Show it to them. Help them subscribe. Take their phone away from them. Subscribe mm-hmm. to the podcast so that it automatically downloads. And then just leave us a review because that helps people find the show. So we appreciate you guys doing that. Venmo yourself $20. Exactly. And it just keeps happening. And we really appreciate it. So thanks for doing that. Uh, Don't forget that if you're shopping on the website at AmericanHauntings.net, which has just been completely overhauled, uh, by the way, updated the whole website. If you are shopping on the podcast or on the website anywhere, use the podcast discount code 
uh, when you go to check out, just use the uh, promo code podcast. That's all you have to do. You get 10% off just for being a listener. So what a deal. Anyway, check out our Patreon page. I already mentioned the Moonlight Murders we did last time. Now we've got the new podcast that we're doing, Come Prepared to Stay Forever. And that is only for Patreon people. It is not on Spotify or Stitcher or anything else. It's only on Patreon, and you can get signed up for that uh, for $5 or more a month. That's it, 5 bucks. You can't even buy coffee at Starbucks for $5, but you can get a month's worth of entertainment from us. So patreon.com slash American Hauntings to check that out, and uh, that's it for me. I'm good. I'm done. I'm finished. Not right. It's not saying anything else. Not another word. God damn it. Okay, go just go take a nap, man. This episode of the American Hauntings Podcast was written by Troy Taylor, produced and edited by me, Cody Beck. Music for this season is performed by Packy Lundholm, whom I was actually speaking with on Facebook the other day. So I, I told you is not fake. How I, long did it take? Am I? I don't know. I, okay, I didn't speak. I it could have been Maggie typing. Um, you can wasn't. find more about his music and upcoming shows on Twitter, Instagram, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, and Facebook. You can find us on most of those places too. Plus, you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, honestly, like Pandora, Amazon, like all these I, weird yeah, places. How many places have anywhere? Not about Amazon. I, we should probably keep mentioning that. Uh, that's like, true. Yeah, Amazon I, Music. I, we're on there. Or something. Uh, I don't. Yeah. Something. Yeah, we're, we're you know wherever you listen to podcasts, we're, we're out there. Um, and if you listen at a weird place, let us know. Like I said, because I always like to, to hear where people listen to us. Um, see the website at AmericanHauntingsPodcast.com for more info about uh, show notes, photos, links, more. I'm going to find a photo of this dumpy little guy and put him in the uh, maybe the the pr- art for oh, the um, yeah. episode or something. Yeah, because that could be fun. So thanks for listening. We couldn't, definitely wouldn't do it without you. Until next time, goodbye. So long. See you later. (laughs) See you later. Oh, boy. All right.